Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Numbers uh, chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, we're doing a series uh, called Lessons from the Wilderness, and we're looking at the Israelites going through the desert wilderness, and we're learning from them some things about God and some things about humanity and some things about us. And so uh, I'd like to read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. This is Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. They traveled from Mount Hor uh, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking right now that you would speak. We're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would communicate to us today. And we're praying, God, that you would help us to know more about this message of salvation, this way of life. So, Lord, would you please have your way in these moments? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This story teaches us about sin, judgment, and grace. It teaches us, really, the gospel. Uh, Sin, which is the condition that humanity has. Judgment, which is the righteous wrath of God against sin. And then grace, God's way of salvation in dealing with that problem. And so, let's look first at sin. Sin is revealed in this story with a few different aspects. In this case, there's impatience. Look at verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. Part of sin is this problem that we have where we want instant gratification versus delayed gratification. Instant gratification, I want my way and I want it right now, versus the way of what I would think is true Christianity, where we say a lot of the blessings come much further down the line. And in some cases, not even in this lifetime, but in the one to come. Which is why somebody like the Apostle Paul could say, look at my laundry list of things that I've gone through. Look at all these tragedies that I've been through. And then he'll say things like this, but I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, what I'm going through right now is nothing compared to the glory that God will reveal in the day to come. So that is delayed gratification, but sin says, no, I need it right now. I demand it right now. I want it my way right now. I want to be happy, and I want to be instantly happy. And anything that opposes that is actually a problem that actually I'm going to rage against. Now, in our culture right now, uh, sociologists call this hyper-expressive individualism. It's kind of just the the air that we breathe in our society. We, we have this narrative, this cultural narrative that says, 
You can do whatever you want, and you need to do whatever makes you happy, and nobody should oppose you. Okay, that is foolish, really, if you're looking at what the scriptures present, but that is the, the cultural narrative that we all live in. You, you should do whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, and you should do whatever makes you happy, and if anyone opposes that, they're a problem. Get rid of them. Well, that is not the way of wisdom. The Bible teaches us that wisdom looks much different. God is able to speak. He's able to inform us of what we should and shouldn't do, but we need to be aware of this cultural moment that we're living in. I mean, it is not just a problem in our society. It's a problem within the church that has slipped into the church. And a lot of Christians and a lot of ministries believe that we need to be happy immediately. We need everything going our way right now. And when it doesn't, we get mad. We get militant. We get rageful against anything that is preventing our immediate happiness. So a part of sin is impatience. We want it, and we want it right now. But another part of sin is an angst against God. They, verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses. This is not new information because we've seen this happening over and over again throughout the narrative of the book of Numbers. They speak against leadership. They're, they're finding somebody to assign blame, and they're saying, you're the problem, Moses. You're the problem, Aaron. You're the problem. And they, they keep pointing at leaders, but then they also speak against God. They imply ordinarily that God is the problem, but here they make it very pointed. They speak against God. They say, no, God is at fault here. Look at us and our condition. This is God's fault. He's not keeping up his end of the bargain. So we're going to speak against him. Now, this is what is called sin of a high hand, where you're shaking your fist at God and you're saying, this isn't what I want. And you are failing me. It's what R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. All sin is cosmic treason, but sin of a high hand is of a particular uh, odious nature. It's where we're saying to God, you, God, are not good. You're not doing your job. You're not treating me as I deserve. You are not holding up your end of the bargain. Sin also then leads us to misguided assessments and conclusions. Look at the end of verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. So there's an emphasis then on what is lacking. They're looking at what's going on around them in the wilderness, and they're saying, we don't have what we need here. There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. But, but listen, what they're doing then is they're emphasizing what they're lacking. The truth is they did have bread, and they did have water. Remember, God gave them water out of a rock. He was able to provide for them out of a rock gushes of water to feed them and their livestock. He gave them bread from heaven called manna, and it would show up every day, and they did have this bread. But now they're saying, we despise this food, this miserable food. And there's a longing then to return to Egypt. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? We, we prefer that. We would like to go back there. And here's, what, here's what's going on, kind of the subtext here. They're saying, you're not a very good God. We actually prefer the gods of Egypt. We want to go back there. We would rather serve those gods because at least then we knew what we were dealing with, but you have made all of these exceptional promises and you have not delivered any of them. A land of milk and honey, and here we are in the desert wilderness 
suffering and dying, it would be better for us to be back there. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? So what's, what's happening then is impatience and angst against God and misguided assessments and conclusions. Now, the truth is, this is a very selfish reality. Raymond Brown puts it like this. This is, a, this is an egotistical preoccupation with self-absorption. But this is what, we, what I do, right? Like, th- that's a pretty scathing critique. But then I look at it and I go, oh, this is all stuff that I'm doing. I'm impatient. I don't like how things are right now. I don't like church life right now. I don't like the impositions of having to consider masks and consider a move and all these different things. And and I don't like the uh, political tone of things that are going on in our world right now. And I get very impatient. And then sometimes I'm, I'm angsty about that and I speak against other people and I condemn other people and I use my mouth in an inappropriate way. And I also make misguided assessments and conclusions. I look at stuff that's going on and I think about it and I go, this isn't what it's supposed to look like or feel like. And all of that is very similar to what the Israelites are doing here. So I wonder if I'm not alone in that. I wonder if a lot of us are kind of going through that experience where we're realizing, wow, sin is a a reality that I'm not done with yet, that I continue to struggle with sin. So what should I do? So there is sin here in the text, and I want you to to think through and, and maybe even to name it, for you to be able to acknowledge your need for God's saving work even today. Even if you've been a believer the majority of your life, to be able to say, look, sin is a, it's a, it's a real problem that still exists in my heart because I'm able to own that entirely today. But the second thing that we find then is God's judgment, his righteous anger. So look at what happens in verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. This reminds me of when my buddy and I started the Action Sports Ministry and we moved down to Orlando uh, to gather a team together, but we didn't have housing arrangements. So we went to a church and we talked to a couple from the church and they agreed to open their home to us in exchange for lawn work. And so we would mow their grass and uh, remove their brush and stuff like that. But man, Florida is very different from the Midwest. It is treacherous. And so we would go out in there and I enjoy mowing the lawn, but not in Florida. So we would go out there and we'd be mowing and there would be nests of snakes and so you'd be mowing, and then you, you hit a nest, and all of a sudden, snakes are everywhere. I was like, oh, I hate this so much. And I don't mean to make light of the judgment of God, but I want you to just feel what that would be like. I want you to think about what is it like to have venomous snakes flying around at your feet, and you are fearing for your life. And you might think, man, this is weird. Like, why is this in the Bible, and what kind of God would do something like this? It just feels wrong. And if you're like Marcion, a heretic who didn't like the Old Testament, you go, let's just delete that, right? Like, why would God ever do that? That doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem consistent with his character. Why would he send venomous snakes into his, the crowd of his people? But we miss the subtlety when we say things like that. Here's what's going on. God is doing something in this moment to reveal the sinfulness of their hearts. He's actually dealing with their longing for Egypt. When you think about Egypt, think about the the gods that they would deify there. Think about Pharaoh's headgear. What did he look like? A cobra. 
He had headgear that was like a cobra. One of the gods in their culture, in their society, one of the things that they would deify is snakes. And what God is saying here is, you long so badly to go back there and serve those gods. Have you forgotten what that's like? Have you forgotten what that is like? That's one of the reasons why when Moses was given a staff, he, it turned, he could throw it down and it would turn into a snake and it ate all the other snakes. And God was saying, I'm the real God here. All those other gods, they're not, they're not real. They're a joke. But here in this moment, God is saying, you, you long so badly for this thing that you think would bring you all that you desire, all that would make you happy, all that would satisfy you, but you have forgotten the treachery of sin. And so he sends snakes, and he gives them then what they want. This is something that God will sometimes do. When we say, I have to have it this way, sometimes God is able to say, okay, if you must. And he doesn't do that without very careful consideration, but this is an aspect of God's judgment. Sometimes he gives us exactly what we want. Romans chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 explain it like this. Therefore, these people who are pursuing their sinful desires, he said, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. They wanted something so badly. They were, they were persistent in that. They were demanding of that. And God says, I will give you over to that if that's really what you insist upon. And you'll find out then how awful that truly is. You're exchanging the truth about God for a lie and you're worshiping and serving something that is created rather than the creator God who is forever praised. That's what sin will do. We will look at something, we will demand it, we will deify it, we will, we will speak about it in salvation language. If I have that, that would be heaven on earth. If I get what I want, then I'd really be happy. And God sometimes is able to say, if that's really what you want, then have at it. And he does that, again, not in a way that is mean or capricious or anything like that, but he does it in love. I don't know if you can stomach, stomach this, but it's an aspect of how God deals with his people. He will, he will allow for these sorts of things to happen. He will even send these sorts of things to happen to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So let me put it in the mouth of uh, an individual that we all cherish, C.S. Lewis. He wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and he wrote um, Mere Christianity, and this is from one of his other uh, works. It's called The Problem of Pain. I think he wrote it, if I remember correctly, I think he wrote it when he lost his wife, Joy. And he wrote this book called The Problem of Pain. And he puts it like this, and we'll put it up on the screen, I think. It says, pain insists upon being attended to. You can't ignore it. You can try, but pain demands being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks to our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He goes on to say, pain is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. We go through pain, we go through difficulty, we experience the righteous judgment of God, and it is God's megaphone saying, wake up, wake up. You, you think that what you're pursuing will give you satisfaction, but it is really a way of death. 
it's a terrible instrument. And it might result in people resisting God's work in their lives and persisting in rebellion, but it removes the veil and it plants a flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. That is what God is doing with pain. That is what's going on when we experience the consequences of our choices, when we rebel against God and his goodness and we find ourselves in a scenario that we can't understand how we got there and it hurts and it's awful and all those different things, God is speaking through his megaphone to wake us up. P.T. Forsyth, he puts it like this. He's uh, thinking about the reality of pain and difficulty and God's judgment, and he, tell, he makes a conclusion that really the reason for it is that it would drive us closer to God. He says the joiner, think about a woodworker, he says the joiner, when he glues together two boards, he keeps them tightly clamped until the cement sets. So with calamities, depressions, disappointments that crush us into closer contact with God. The pressure on us is kept till the soul's union with God is set. We go through these awful moments and God is using it redemptively. That's what you need to hear. God is able to wield the pain and disappointments and even his righteous judgment for our good. He is trying to increase our love for him and our connectedness to him. So God is a righteous judge. We find out about his judgment here as he sends the venomous snakes among his people, giving them what they want, but really trying to awaken them to the reality of sin and its treachery. And God will do the same thing for us because he is kind and he loves us enough that he will not leave us in our condition. But that leads us then to his grace. We find out about God's grace here. And one of the aspects of God's grace is repentance. Having experienced the judgment of God, the people come to their senses. They're awakened to the reality. Verse 7 says, The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There's a repentance that's going on here. They're coming, they're coming alive to the things of God, and they're going, This is crazy. Why did I think that going away from God would be better? Why did I think that that would be to my advantage, that rejecting God and resisting him would lead to my happiness? And they're able to say, we sinned. They're owning what they have done. This is true repentance, which the Bible is able to compare true repentance over against false repentance. It tells us in another book in the Bible in the New Testament that there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. It's, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that this didn't work out the way that I thought it would. I'm sorry that this is, you know, doing damage to other people around me. I'm sorry. But that's worldly sorrow. You can get that anywhere. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to life. Godly sorrow is, I have sinned. I have rejected God's goodness in my life. I have heard his voice and I have stiff-armed God and gone my own way. I invented what I thought would make me happy, and I came to find out it ultimately led to death. There is true repentance on display here, and that's what we're after. The grace of God comes to us when we repent and we say, we have sinned. I have sinned. I have not done what God wanted, and I own that, and I recognize that. And repentance then is turning from sin and turning toward God 
believing that he will gladly receive us. Repentance is not, okay, I'm sorry I screwed up. Let me go fix my life. Let me try. That's self-righteousness. Let me try to make everything better. No, true repentance is I've sinned. I'm going to my Savior who can be my remedy. Another aspect of grace is faith. What God tells us here, what he institutes here is this way of relief that comes by way of faith. So look at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. This is where we get that symbol at every pharmacy where you see a pole with a snake on it. This is the, the historic symbol for healing. This is where it came from. It came from God's own invention. God says, do this, make a snake, put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. This is the the way that God institutes for people to receive relief and healing. But it's pretty crazy. He's saying, all you have to do is look. All you have to do is lay eyes on this instrument of God's saving work, and you can look at it, and you can live. Meaning, you have to put some faith in it. This is not go find some ointment or go find some physician or go find some expert who can bring you the relief. He says, all you have to do is look and live. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. That is an act of faith because it's not, there's not a direct correlation between I've been bitten by a venomous snake. I'm going to look at a snake on a pole. Obviously, I'll get all better. No, no, no. This is, I'm trusting in God's promise. God has given a word, and I'm going to believe that word to be true and effective for me, and it is. It's faith. It's looking at what God has done and what he has said and believing it to be true. And it results then in life. Look at verse 9. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So, so they experience this life, and that's what God is after. He is not, he's not trying to punish everybody. He, he doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked, but he desires that everyone would come to saving faith and therefore life. And so this grace results in their life. Now here's the reality then about this story. It is the gospel in a nutshell. It's showing us the good news of the gospel. God Here's what he does on his end. He gives a word of promise for salvation. That's what God is doing. He is saying, you have a condition, you have a need. I have a way of remedy. Here's what it is. It's my word of promise. It's my way of salvation. You believe in that and you can experience life. Now here's what we bring to the table then on our end of the equation. We bring the sin. We are the ones who say, I have the the condition that needs a remedy. I have the venomous sinfulness in my own heart, and I'm the one who's in need of your saving work, God. We bring the sin to the equation, and then we express ourselves in repentance and faith. We say, look, this is not right. I'm going to turn from it and turn toward God to experience his relief, and I'm going to place my faith in his word of promise. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, the New Testament connects those dots directly. When, when John wrote his gospel, he put this right in there in chapter 3. He said, Just as Moses, Moses 
lifted up the snake in the wilderness. This is the same as what he's saying, just like that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What happened in the wilderness, that was the, that was the, the precursor to the gospel. That was a foreshadowing of the reality. Just like Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is lifted up so that anyone who believes in Him may have eternal life in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. So for us, it's very clear. We are sinners. There's a righteous judgment from God, but God has made a way of salvation through His Son. And the way that we experience that salvation is to look at Him, to believe on Him, and to live. In fact, John goes on in chapter 6 to say it like this. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. You look at the Son and you believe in Him and you experience that remedy for sin, that relief, that healing work of God. You experience eternal life. You experience God's saving work. So my job as a preacher, as I understand it, is to lift up the sun. You know, that word is talked about in a physical way of lifting up. You make that snake on that pole, lift it up so that people can see it. But it also has a connotation of exaltation. Lift this thing up. This is to be noteworthy. Look at this thing. And that's my job as a preacher, to lift up the sun and say, look at him and live. Don't think that your sinful strategy is going to result in your satisfaction and your happiness and your heaven on earth, recognize that ultimately will lead to death. But look at him. Look at the son and believe in him and experience his saving work. This story gives us the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He is the one who can take the problem that we have of our own sinfulness and he can deal with it entirely at his cross. We look at him and he takes on all of the venom of all of the things that we've done wrong and he gifts us with his righteousness. We experience then his saving work. So Numbers 21 tells us the good news of the gospel. Look at Jesus and live. Let me invite the band to come and let me pray. And, um, and let me just say that whether this is your very first time looking to him and placing your faith in him or your 400th time of doing it or your whatever number you could assign to it, it's all the same. Every one of us watching online at home, here at the tree farm, every one of us needs to go through this thing that we've described today, acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for God's saving work, recognizing his righteous wrath against sin, and casting ourselves on the good news of the gospel, the Savior Jesus Christ, who we can look on and believe in and experience eternal life. So let's pray and do that right this moment. Lord, all of us in here, myself included, and I'll even put it like the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. The only heart that I know this well is my own, and so I recognize all of this in me. But you are a great Savior. And so, Lord, I look to you, and I invite my friends to look on you right now again, or for the first time, but to look on you and to experience your saving work. Help us to acknowledge our need. Use that megaphone to awaken us to our spiritual deafness of this thing that's going on in our world and in our hearts. 
Awaken us to that reality and then help us to, to look to the Son and find all that we need in Him. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. Would you